Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I wanted to welcome you all here and to thank you all for coming. I know that all of us have lots of things vying for our attention and it's wonderful to see you here and it's wonderful to see so many of you here. I'm Rick McKinney. I'm the chairman for this series of the Osher uh, Mini Medical School program. Uh, this time we have a double Osher Mini Medical School program since that's the name of the main series, but it is also this particular series of six sessions is being sponsored by the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. I'm a practitioner there. The speaker tonight is our medical director, uh, and I'll tell you more, a bit more about him in just a minute. The Mini Medical School series has been going for a number of years now at UCSF. Faculty members from various departments come together and present talks aimed at the, the well-informed and wanting to be better informed public. Uh, tonight, we, I'm very privileged to introduce my good friend and colleague, uh, Kevin Barrows. Kevin has been a part of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine for 10 years. He has been leading the uh, programs on uh, mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction programs for most of that time, if not all that time. He's been uh, leader, the director of group programs in general for the OSHA program, and right now he's also serving as the interim medical director for the clinic at the OSHA Center. He has worked in uh, mind-body medicine and especially with mindfulness-based stress reduction for many years. He has researched uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction in many different ways and has published on it. Uh, he is a associate clinical professor at UCSF. Uh, probably most important of all, Kevin is an ex a exceptionally skilled and an outstandingly compassionate clinician. And I will introduce him right now. We're also hearing tonight from Christy Dahlia Holm, who Kevin will introduce later. She's the uh, yoga teacher at the Osher Center. And from Joseph Aqua, who's one of our uh, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. Kevin. And so we'll inaugurate the talk on mindfulness, uh, excuse me, on mind-body medicine. Very traditional. So thank you, Rick, for that introduction. Um, Rick is a, is a friend of mine and a fellow family physician. And um, one thing, and he's going to give your talk next week. Um, one thing you probably won't hear in that introduction or else, anywhere else about Rick is uh, that, I'm, that I admire about him as a fellow family physician is he worked in the outback in Alaska as the, the sole family doc in town kind of thing, and also in a, in a rural area in Washington. Um, one of my favorite stories from his time in Alaska is the, being chased by a grizzly bear. Um, and um, actually, that's, somehow that story just sticks with me because actually next week when he's up here talking, if you squint, take the opportunity at some point, just kind of squint, and you'll see he looks like a grizzly bear, actually. <laughs> okay, so um, this is a great opportunity because we're all here together, and this is a fantastic topic. 
And uh, one of my favorites, and I see a couple of familiar faces in the crowd, so I think this is going to be fun. And I, I hope you enjoy. At the end, um, we're going to have a panel. Um, you'll see I've invited, this is actually kind of the biggest thrill for me, is I've invited two of my colleagues from the Osher Center to be with us tonight to contribute. Um, and I'll introduce them as we get uh, later in the talk. And at the end, we'll form a panel, and you can, you can ask us questions, and we'll... Actually, I'm thinking of it more as a discussion uh, than us telling you something, and, and, and I'll explain that. So um, I didn't know what to call this talk. Let me, let me go back. So that's the, that's the phony title. Um, and, and I thought, boy, you know, let's, this, this is a topic I've thought a lot about, and we're all interested in Rick's favorite topic, my favorite topic. Let's just, I wanted to sort of deconstruct it and really think brand new about it, and with you, actually, in a process with you. So, so I thought, okay, well, the mind-body medicine. I thought, no, no, that's not quite right. Uh, mind-body-spirit medicine, aha, that, no, no, that's not quite good enough. Um, let's, let's, really, let's really think about this, oh, mind-body non-dualism. Ooh, that's deep. That's deep. Wait a minute, that still doesn't capture some of the things I think we need to explore so I thought, what the hell do I call this lecture? So I've decided the best way to go is to think about this together. So um, as, as we go through the evening, I will put things out to you, and I'd love to hear what you think. So here's my tentative outline for how we would proceed. So first, um, why are we all here? <laughs> what is interesting, attractive, special about mind-body medicine? Um, that's fun to just even stop for a moment and think about that. Um, Secondly, before we get too far, what, the, what is mind-body medicine anyway? Um, thirdly, and, and I'll try to keep this brief, actually. It's just my choice this time is the research. Um, I'll, I'll definitely hit some highlights, but I don't want to uh, spend uh, the majority of our time citing the research. Um, and I can't resist, because I think we should have some fun here, too, is um, talk about the mind-body medicine toys or technologies that, that are just fun that are out there. Um, and then... At that point, I'm going to invite you to forget absolutely everything I've said, and we're going to invite Christy to actually lead us in an experience that I, that I think will be um, uh, emblematic of some of what mind-body medicine uh, is. And then my recently arrived colleague, Dr. Joseph Aqua, is going to present a case with us, and we're going to look at mind-body medicine from a system and a culture that never separated mind and body in the first place. I think that'll be very instructive. And then after that, um, the three of us will be up front here, and maybe Rick, too, can join us, and we'll, we'll just see what kind of discussion we can have. So what do you think? What do you think? What is attractive, special, interesting about mind-body medicine? Just, just shout or raise your hand or just, what do you think? Why are you here? Oh, I knew it. The Rodin sculpture is intimidating, right? All right. So what do you think? Come on. Why are you here? What's this topic? You, you chose this topic. Why? There's no separation. So this idea of, of, of that we're on a crusade to, 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 um, uh, to remember that there's mind and body are not separate, maybe. All kinds of psychosomatic things yeah. and giving um, 
Hallelujah, sister. Um, so first of all, I'm honored you're here. Any practitioners, I'm honored that you're here. And I very much, this is what got me interested years ago in mind-body medicine. It was clear to me, I was doing kind of high-volume family medicine about 11 years ago now at UCSF here. And, and I was realizing, I had my mindfulness background, and I was starting to see it through that lens. And I was realizing, wow, most of the suffering that I'm seeing in my you know, 20, 25 patients a day were, um, it was more in the mind, actually, than the ankle or the abdomen or, or wherever the, the identified source of complaint was. So, yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Um, so, interested in learning about ways that we can heal ourselves, is what she said. Yeah. It's great that my life looks as a human being as a whole person. Yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 the contribution to holism. The, the, okay. Um, so... I thought about it myself also before I came here, and you've hit on some of them. So one is, and I think you just said it, is um, for me sometimes there's a sense when I'm really deeply practicing um, that somehow I'm making, making things right. I'm, there's, a, there's a disconnection that I'm reconnecting. It belongs connected. I just get that sense. I think many of you probably have had that experience if you've done any of the what are commonly identified as mind-body practices. Um, uh, moments of, you might experience them as peace or sort of uh, moments of, say, no thought or deep immersion in a particular experience. Um, there's a sense that this is actually, this is the native state. This is how it's supposed to be. <coughs> Someone else, I think, was addressing this. Hope. Um, the, the idea that, that there's this... Um, mysterious untapped potential is very hopeful to me. We've all heard the story, oh, the doctor said he had six months to live, and that was ten years ago. Um, So when I hear things like that, I always wonder about, yeah, one of the many unknowns in medicine is this, the power that we have to influence our own beings um, through the use of the mind. Self-efficacy is the term from psychology you might be familiar with, meaning a sense of that, that you can affect your future. You can affect that you have some control. You can affect the outcome in your life. Um, it's actually that as a, as a psychological um, uh, measure is uh, very clearly correlated. For example, after a, a, a myocardial infarction or heart attack, people with more self-efficacy, people who think they can make more of a difference in their rehabilitation... Uh, have less mortality than people who on surveys feel like, I've had this heart attack, it was out of the blue, there's nothing I can do about it, there's nothing I will be able to do about it in the future. They actually have a higher mortality. So actually very profound, some of the things we're looking at here. The mystery of it, so I do hope one day there's no disease or illness, but I kind of don't hope that there will ever be a day when we figured out the body-mind completely. Because it just, it's just an endless source of fascination for me, and I think all of us. Um, and then finally, and I don't know how to explain this, uh, I, I don't know how to talk about this um, explicitly yet, but clearly I think this is what draws a lot of us, is there's a connection to the spiritual. So I, I almost wonder in my mind, the, um, it's almost that same gesture of going from body to mind 
is going from mind to spirit. In other words, the recognition the, the, in the, the experience that mind and body are connected, actually never separated, um, is that same motion is somehow uh, psychically what's going on with respect to spiritual. That's the best I can do. You might have your own words, but, but I, it's clearly the case. All the colleagues I have that are interested in mind-body medicine all have sort of spiritual inclinations and interests. And actually, this is interesting. Rick referred to some of the research that we've done on mindfulness at the Osher Center. Um, there was, we did three cohorts of 25 each of the health professional students here at UCSF. So we put them all together, dental, medical, nursing, pharmacy, physical therapy, put them all together. So 75, um, and this eight-week mindfulness meditation program. And the outcomes were, were favorable that I'm, I'm proud of, so you know, de- de- decreased depression, decreased anxiety, kind of typical findings with a mindfulness intervention. But the thing that changed the most was an index of spirituality, people's sense of spirituality, which was defined, you know, it's very, it can be defined very differently depending on the tool you use. So ours was... Um, Uh, the components of the spiritual assessment were um, sense of connection to something larger than yourself, sense of meaning, um, comfort with uh, death or the the awareness of death. Um, These were some of the elements. So actually, in in our study, spirituality was the the thing that that changed the most. Okay, so so what, what... is this thing anyway? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can help me. Um, here's how I thought about it. There's an old idea, and that is, um, oh, we've, we've, some would say it's a mistake. Some would just say it's the historical, you know, just this, empirically this is what happened. But in, in um, sort of Western culture, uh, the mind and the body were split. Um, many people attribute the beginning of this to Rene Descartes, the French philosopher from the 17th century, there were um, this this mind-body dualism was there were there were some um, it had existed previously in history in ancient Greece but but it's really since Descartes that and I'd say most of us are a product of this culture of living in post-industrial post-scientific method um, modern America um, it's since Descartes that the cultural paradigm by default so it's, it could be unconscious for most of us is mind and body are separate. And Descartes was clear, the body is like a machine, and the mind is sort of the, the, um, the noble organ, and it's his, famous, his most famous um, phrase we all identify him by, I think, therefore I am, or, or I am thinking, therefore I exist. So that the, the, the absolute preeminence of the mind and the almost, um, almost uh, denigration or neglect of the body Another historical factor that might have contributed to this is the rise of science and the scientific method. So science, um, as powerful as it is, has, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy in itself, and it has certain characteristics. And I would say reductionism and materialism are, are some of the characteristics of science, and that would also tend to, tend to separate mind and body. So the old idea in mind-body medicine is, oh, well, we, we, we separated the mind and the body. Let's put them back together. Um, you know, like almost, I just picture we got a head over here and a body over here, and well, gee, shouldn't we put those back together? So that's kind of the old idea. Um, and I think part of the old idea, I'll say even, is, um, and then when we put them back together, we can use the mind to have an effect on the body. Um, so we can do guided imagery, and 
improve our immune function or something like you know there's many such examples so so this idea that it's um, the mind still the mind and the body are separate we just happen to have connected them <laughs> physically and the mind is influencing the body so there's still an inherent dualism to this old idea even though the, the correcting that the error of bringing them together is nice there's still a a, a dualistic thinking just the term mind body medicine i've actually thought a lot about how to write that word do you capitalize the b do you hyphenate it do you not hyphenate it um these days i'm wanting to not hyphenate it now so so it really catches people's attention because then it would be grammatically sort of striking mind body still with a capital b then to make it clear this is one thing this is not two things in relation actually um uh actually it's one thing the other part of the old idea is that this relationship is unidirectional the mind, we do something with the mind to influence the body. So the new idea would be, oh, wait a minute, um, this is, this, let's get rid of this dualism. Um, mind and body are not separate. You are just one organism, and anything that we do um, affects the whole organism. Any, any mood you're in, any medical therapy we offer, any experience you have in life, it's affecting the whole package. And also... If, if you resort to the idea that, that these are separate parts, say, of the same entity, that it's bi-directional. You can do something with your body that will influence your mind. I think we all know that. We've had that experience, and there's a lot of research to this effect, too. If you do aerobic exercise, you feel better, uh, and the research shows you have less depression. I mean, it, it affects your mood. Some people very acutely, you can see that. Um, I always think about uh, some of the medicines we use. Interferon is, is this wonderful product of genetic engineering that we use for um, mostly for um, chronic hepatitis treatment. And um, it's, it's, it's something that your body, your white blood cells naturally produce. When you get infected by a virus, your white cells secrete interferon to prevent infection from other viruses. And the teleological reasoning is, well, if you've got one viral infection, it's you need to not get another one, and so your body secretes interferon. So we've exploited this. We've got bacteria producing it now, and we can inject it into you to help you recover from your hepatitis, and, and I think it's used in other capacities as well. Interferon causes depression. It's just that the side effect for interferon causing depression, is, it's, I think it's over 30%, 40%. So I inject you with interferon. That might be great to help with your hepatitis, but it, it causes depression. So here's Here's a chemical that your body makes that affects your mood, your mind, pretty profoundly. And that's just, I mean, I bet all of us in here could relate a story of a medicine uh, that we've tried that, that had an effect on our mind, even, say, unintentionally. Okay, so, so the new idea, so to repeat, so the old idea, gee, the mind and the body, how did we do that? We've decapitated ourselves. Let's put it back together. And we've put it back together, and it's, it's, uh, now that it's back together, we can do things with the mind to affect the body, and that's the one direction here. The new idea is, wait a minute, let's go a step further, and let's really look at this. This is bidirectional and non-dualistic. The very old idea is, how about never separating them in the first place? That's why I have Christy and Joseph here, because their traditions, yoga and Chinese medicine respectively, never separated the two. And so hearing from them, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to be useful for us um, as we contemplate this. And then what about, I'm going to leave that for just in a moment. So 
so forgive me, I'm going to go back to the old paradigm for a moment because we just have to. That's just all the, all the way we've been thinking about it and all the literature, all the research and stuff is in that paradigm. So, so let me tell you a little bit about that. These are the things um, that are commonly used. There, there are many other mind-body methods, um, but these are the ones that are most commonly used. And I'll just say one word about each very quickly. So hypnosis... Um, Think of hypnosis as a method where um, a um, practitioner, a hypnotherapist, uh, it's my preference that it be a mental health practitioner, a psychologist or something, um, gets a sense of your subconscious mind, which is different. We all have our subconscious minds different from from each other. And there's imagery. uh, As they say, imagery is the language of the subconscious. So find out, so if say you're suffering from chronic low back pain, what, what image does your subconscious mind carry about that low back pain? Then the hypnotherapist can provide a suggestion to your subconscious mind. That's the key. It's, it's bypassing the rational, discursive, analytic mind that says, hey, that's ridiculous. Just because this guy tells me I'm, I shouldn't have back pain, that's, why should that work? It's, it's really getting directly in touch with the subconscious mind and planting a suggestion <coughs> based on your particular subconscious profile. Um, the research for hypnosis, if you look at the um, clinical medical research on it, um, it's effective for pain. Um, a lot of associated cancer symptoms, like nausea, anxiety, pain related to cancer. Biofeedback is a, and I want to point out, we have a nurse uh, who who's our biofeedback expert at the Osher Center, Teresa Corrigan. And biofeedback is, um, I'll, I'll describe it in a way much less uh, sort of complex and elegant as, as Teresa would, but basically monitoring some physiologic process of the body that is, that is usually unconscious, certainly your heart rate or your perspiration rate or your muscle tension. And then that is, that is monitored and fed back to you either on a visual display or, or even on auditory um, feedback, um, usually with computers. And you can actually see then that physiologic parameter as it changes. And so you can start to try to change that parameter, that previously unconscious parameter. You can start to try to consciously exert influence, and you can see the result. And so it's a, basically it's a kind of a training. And Teresa always says... Um, that uh, she's there to teach people, so to train people, so that they can do this on their own. Research for biofeedback is is especially strong. This is this will, might strike you as funny, but um, as odd. Um, but the, the the strongest research in biofeedback is actually incontinence, urinary and fecal incontinence. In fact, we have the Pelvic Physiology Center here at UCSF, um, and uh, it really is the um, uh, the, the, the method of first resort, I would say, for, for forms of those conditions. Also, blood pressure. Uh, I feel biofeedback can be effective for reducing blood pressure. Not in all cases, and the, the medical literature on this is, is definitely, there's, there's opposing view, but I would say the balance of it is uh, in favor. Also, headache, um, and as Teresa would say, just about anything that you want to put your attention to, you can probably influence with biofeedback. Guided imagery, similar to hypnosis in that we're talking about the subconscious mind, but here in this case, we're using the imaginative capacity of the mind 
Research for guided imagery is especially um, impressive for perioperative care. So if you're going to get a surgery, um, it, actually it, it's at one point, I don't know if this is true in California, but it's definitely true in other states. Blue Cross sends, anybody going to surgery, they send them a guided imagery CD because for them it's cheap, right? It's probably a couple of bucks to make that CD. And they know, they have seen research that shows that it helps outcomes and people love it. So um, you'll be getting a whole lecture on that. Progressive muscle relaxation. I think I'm going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over some of these. Um, breathing. How many people are breathing right now? <laughs> good, good. I'm all for breathing. No, there, 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 are, there are ways of breathing that can profoundly influence your physiology and your mental state. Um, the oldest tradition of this is pranayama the, the, from the Ayurvedic uh, um, method, and from the Ayurvedic system of medicine. Journaling, or what in the medical research is called written emotional disclosure. Um, <laughs> um, now, I must say, I looked at the research on this, and it's equivocal. It's equivocal. But there are definitely some conditions in some cases where it is, it is effective. And um, so that's interesting, you know, that just telling someone, okay, I'd like you to write about the, the, the most challenging or traumatic events in your life, for 15 minutes a day for the next few days. That that alone, just writing it, um, uh, not even the sort of psychotherapeutic processing of it, but just the, just the eliciting of it actually can improve asthma uh, in some cases um, and pediatric pain. Meditation's my favorite. I could speak all night about that. Um, I feel the, the research there is robust. And I'll just define meditation as um, the self-regulation of attention. So choosing to do something very deliberate with your mind in meditation. Um, and there are different varieties of meditation. My favorite for medical use um, is, is mindfulness meditation because I always say it's more portable. It teaches you how to pay attention to anything, actually, that comes up. You start with the breath and the body and, and the things that are immediately accessible to you. But once you develop a kind of a concentration and, a, and an understanding of what the, the qualities of attention are in mindfulness practice, you can bring that mindfulness to your back pain or your anxiety or your stress at home or whatever's going on for you. So that's, that's, that's why I like it. I think that's why it's been quite successful. So I'm not going to, what about these other things and, and its relationship to mind-body medicine? I'm just going to ask the questions. I don't, I don't even know, uh, but I, just to sort of stimulate our thinking together. So what about prayer and shamanic healing and the placebo effect and the nocebo effect, the opposite, like you're, I, I think you're not going to do well and then you don't do well. Or I think this medicine is going to cause you a side effect and then cause you a side effect. Um, how about this? This maybe is in a different category, but just blushing. So, so you feel embarrassed. You have a thought or there's a certain situation, you get embarrassed. What happened? A profound vasodilatation, a vascular event occurs. I mean, it's... And, and uh, it's just amazing. <laughs> um, interferon, I mentioned. The gate theory of pain. So, so this is the idea that you, um, so say we take a hammer, hit my thumb, ouch. Signal comes to my spinal cord that synapses and then goes to my brain. The brain registers. Shouldn't have done that. That hurts. <laughs> um, there are also descending fibers from the brain that synapse to meet that peripheral nerve. So I, there are things that my brain does that can modulate my experience of pain. My mood, 
um, uh, certain um, uh, medicines. Um, you, um, you can think of the, uh, the kind of the rush of, of athletic competition or, or war battle um, where pain is not felt. Actually, it, the tissue damage is still happening, but the perception of the pain is not, or it's greatly modified. Aromatherapy. Just, you, don't e- you don't even have to be aware of this. In fact, the research on this, a lot of it's done in Alzheimer's patients uh, with agitation. So in, in skilled nursing facilities, um, uh, you know, it's, a, it's very agitating for Alzheimer's patients to not know where they are. And if they do, if they're told, and then one moment later they, they forgot again. And, so, so, and then these strange people who happen to be the nurses that have been taking care of them for five years, but to them it's a brand new strange person coming at them, wanting to bathe them or something. So it's, it can be very threatening, very, very unsettling, so there can be a lot of agitation. Just totally out of their awareness, floating lavender uh, or other um, soothing aromas actually demonstrably can reduce their agitated behavior. Music, we all, I mean, music affecting your, your, your mood and your body. Um, and uh, energy therapies like Reiki, etc. I just, I feel like our pre- my, my point with this slide is our previous ideas of mind-body medicine are, are inadequate. There's a lot of, it's just, it's just much, much bigger and much, much less defined than, than we think. Okay, I've already mentioned a lot of the research, actually, um, and I want to get to my colleagues. So I think, so let's see. I think um, those first four, thoughts, emotions, social relationships, and religious practice, the research on those, this, this is old, and it comes from the psychology literature, not really sort of the integrative medicine literature, about how the way we think, the emotions we're experiencing, the degree and quality of social relationships we have, and the frequency, this is just frequency of religious attendance, those all strongly correlate with health outcomes. And I can, I can be very specific with you about that. Um, of note, under emotions, the old research, or the original research, is about negative emotions. It's very, it's very impressive. Someone, again, go back to the heart attack. Someone's had a heart attack. If they're depressed, they are, it's somewhere, it's between two and three and a half times more likely to die of a second heart attack than um, someone who is not depressed. It's to the point now where all the cardiologists know this, and after, they're looking for it. So after a heart attack, they're going to be aggressively looking to treat any depression. Now, the newer research, however, is about positive emotions. And one of our colleagues is, is uh, one of the leading researchers in this area, Judy Moskowitz, and she's going to be speaking in your series also. So I'll leave that to her. Toys. Okay, so this is, fun. I just, I love this. I thought you'd enjoy it. So, so just what are some of the things you can do, you can experience, you can play with um, that, uh, that, uh, that kind of take advantage or, or explore some of these mind-body uh, phenomenon? So drumming is the original mind-altering Technology for sure. Uh, shamanic healers use it. I mean, it's it's um, it's probably the first thing humans ever did. <laughs> Have you? Has anybody heard of binaural technology? Yeah. So so it's um, the, the the clinical research on this is is very minimal, um, um, but there is some, and uh, it's I should say sort of medical research on it. There there is some physiologic research on it, 
but the medical research on it is, is uh, early. But it's, it's so interesting, I, and, and, um, and people, everybody, myself included, ex- feel different when, when they do this. So uh, these are a couple, of, I have no financial affiliations, by the way, with anything I'm mentioning. Um, so these are, these are two ones that are out there that seem to be like leaders or popular or something. The, the names I hear the most, Hemisync and Holosync, although you can, you can get free binaural technology off the web even. But the idea is two different frequency sounds are delivered to your ears. It's got to be less than 1,000 hertz, and the difference, I think, has to be less than 40 hertz. So let's say you get 400 hertz delivered, a sound of 400 hertz delivered here and 410 hertz here. Your brain, and now this is probably from the fact that we have a really, as a species, we are very good at discriminating where a sound is coming from, as long as it's below 1,000 hertz. So if there's a sound, I can localize it pretty fast. Um, and that's because it's arriving at a slightly different frequency, right? Because if it's a sound is over here, it's coming at a slightly different frequency in this ear than it is in this ear. Um, so, so that's probably why the, the wiring is the way it is. And then this binaural technology sort of exploits that. So you get one frequency here, another one here, slightly different. It, um, your brain tries to integrate that and creates what the proponents of this claim is an entrainment wave, um, and I do believe this, there is the research proving this much, that that frequency, so in my example, it was 10 hertz difference, um, there, there, there will then be a 10 hertz um, cycle uh, that entrains in your brain, and certain areas of your brain will just fall into that. And so these uh, people, the researchers and, and the, the people selling these things, claim that you can alter brainwave patterns um, what I could report is, is everybody that I know that have tried it feels different, feels relaxed, or feels something. So it's just very interesting. Um, more in the category of auditory, um, for those of you who are familiar with the chakras, these are the, the energy, uh, energy wheels, is the literal translation, in the body uh, according to um, Ayurvedic medicine. So these seven wheels of energy um, in your body. Each one responds to a different frequency, the theory goes, and so you can actually stimulate independent chakras using, you can buy a CD or even, even some practitioners actually, uh, actually will do this live with you. Um, and then I just think again of music. music. Think of how music can affect you. If, if we played the, the Moonlight Sonata, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata right now, we would all get very kind of, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd be different. Um, what about visual? So there's this product. It's actually the RelaxMate 2. It's, <laughs> and Dr. Norm Sheely, who's an old name in, um, in sort of alternative medicine circles, it's his device. And it, um, it gives um, these, these glasses that have a little power pack with it. And it will um, deliver light at a certain frequency that can be altered and certain colors. And the claim is that this alters the state of mind. Um, there's uh, someone right here in San Francisco, Meyer Schneider. Uh, Dr. Schneider is just a very creative um, healer. And he runs the uh, School for Self-Healing in the Outer Sunset. And uh, he was born blind and developed exercises to restore his own sight. And I listened to one of his programs, and we've had him lecture a little bit, and um, he has certain exercises. You can do things with your eyes that, that I've done that 
really can be deeply relaxing. You know, I don't know if there's other effects on the mind that, that uh, any of his work might have, but, but definitely that much, I, I noticed. Um, now, forgive me, Teresa, my biofeedback uh, friend. So this, I shouldn't call this toys. This should be tools or technologies or something. But I call them toys because they're so much fun. These are, these are biofeedback programs that are commonly available. Um, they're not nearly as sophisticated as what Teresa does, but these are things you can get on your, your laptop and do it at home. The top one is more um, physiologic and, um, as you can tell, sort of graphic and scientific. The bottom one, Journey to Wild Divine, is much more kind of entertaining. Um, and you go, you know, depending on, depending on what it's measuring, which might be your heart rate variability, your skin temperature, the amount that you're perspiring, which all reflect what your sympathetic nervous system, is, or what your autonomic nervous system is doing in any moment, you might ascend into the temple and Deepak Chopra will be there to say hello to you. Or you can ride on the zebra and you, or you get to meet the beautiful girl and go into the temple or something, I don't know. But the, and and other, other names, uh, other big names are on this too. Those are DVD, well no, they're actually they're whole like software packages. Those are like 300 bucks, Teresa, 300 bucks, yeah. So um, no small thing. I always start with Teresa. I wouldn't just go out and buy those and fool around. I would start with Teresa and then see if this is right for you. But but they're really fun. And let's move on to my colleague and friend, Christy. So Christy Dahlia Holm has been practicing yoga for 20 years, teaching for over 15. She has, let's see, you are on the faculty at the Integral Yoga Training Institute. She has written about yoga. She's done research about yoga. Forget everything that I've said, forget even the word yoga, and let's just take a ride with Christy for a little while here. Good evening. So I have been invited to share with you uh, the direct experience of doing some yoga this evening. And in order to gauge the level of instruction that will be most effective for you, I'd love to have a sense of where we're starting from. So can I have a sense of those brave souls who have not yet ventured into the brave new world of yoga? Oh, great. And people who've tried it a little, not too much. And are there regular practitioners? Okay, a pretty even mix then. Excellent. So, let's close eyes. I didn't see Kevin's presentation before he gave it this evening. He gave me a sense of what he would be doing, but I hadn't heard it exactly. And it was really fascinating to me to see how very much of it is engaged very directly in what we do in yoga and particularly his thoughts about what appeals to us about mind-body medicine. The sense of reconnecting what belongs connected actually is the definition of yoga. The word yoga comes from the Sanskrit root word yug, which means to yoke together, as you would yoke your oxen together, to rejoin, to harmonize. So my delight this evening is to get to give you some experience of that. We'll start by bringing the awareness down to the belly. 
and try to just let it go. Letting go is often much harder than holding on. So for contrast, let's give it a squeeze. Exhale and contract the belly. Squeeze your navel back toward your spine. And then on inhale, let go. Exhale, the abdomen contracts and helps to squeeze air outward. And inhale, let go, feel the air flow in. And simply repeat this. Technically, this is diaphragmatic abdominal breathing. You are breathing in a way that is allowing a nice full use of the diaphragm. In practice, we often call it belly breath. That flows easily into Dirgaswasam, a full yogic breath. Inhale, you'll feel the abdomen expand again, and then the middle chest and the upper chest. Exhale, upper chest contracts, middle chest, and then the abdomen. So the inhale wave is bottom up, and the exhale is top down. This one is a little bit less precise than the belly breathing. The belly breathing is a very direct and literal instruction. The flow in the three-part breathing here is a little more gestural. What will actually happen in your body is more complex than what I am describing. Studies have shown that when we aren't thinking about it and we just take a simple unconscious breath, we move about 500 cc's of air, about 500 cubic centimeters. Our average full capacity is 3,500 centimeters. So simply working with this practice can increase the amount of air moving through the body by seven times. You can go days without water and weeks without food. Very little time without breath. Think about how healing it is to the body to have seven times more breath. Kevin mentioned also the self-regulation of attention happens through the entire yoga practice. We choose to be attentive to the breath and to link it with movement. So my options in terms of movement with you are a little bit limited this evening by the fact that you're in a chair and you probably have a pile of tippy papers right in front of you. So little movements, just a taste. On the next exhale, let the body curl forward. On the inhale, lift up to center. 
and arch backward a little. Press the hips down into the chair and lift the chest. You might scoot forward a little away from the back of your chair to give a little more space for your spine to move. So playing with spinal flexion and extension. On the exhale, rounding forward. And on the inhale, up and back. Now, as you do this, as you do anything that I suggest here, pay attention. And anywhere that you get the sense, oh, maybe this one is not such a great idea, listen to your intuition and pass on that practice. My goal when someone is practicing with me for the first time is that they always walk back out thinking, oh, I feel so relaxed. That was lovely. I would like to try that again. I think I could work harder next time. And not, oh, I need an ice pack. And maybe a visit with that nice Dr. Barrows. (laughs) Go lightly. And then come to center. Now, put your right hand on the side of the seat of your chair. And gently lift your left arm up overhead. You get to make friends with your neighbors now. Press the hips down into the chair and lift more with the crown of the skull than with the arm. Upward. And reach up and slightly over to the right. So you're not having a contest here of how close can my right shoulder get to the floor, but more what if there were an apple just out of my reach, diving upward. And then come to center. And inhale. And exhale to the opposite side. And come to center. Now with the pace of the breath, simply move from side to side. If you have space, you could keep lifting through the arms. If that feels awkward or if you don't have space, you could press the hands against the lap and simply move from side to side. Feel the ribs fan open away from one another. And keep coming back to that deep, simple breath. and then center. Now, if you have shoulder injuries, rotator cuff injuries, very gently with the next practice, or maybe just watch. You'll see what you think. Lift the arms up and cross them on top of one another. Lift the fingertips to point upward. Mm-hmm. Now, for some people, this is quite a challenge, just having the elbows hooked together. Others will find that very easily one hand will tuck under the other. As you like, whichever works, as long as you've got one arm over the other. And you take comfort in the fact that while that is a little complicated, the full pose looks like this. So you're getting the easy version. This is the arm portion of Garudasana, the eagle pose. So you could hold this. Or you could go a little deeper. The heart draws back toward the spine. 
and the elbows reach forward. So you're expanding from front to back. And gently draw the elbows, right arm toward the right and left arm toward the left. And you might feel that spreading the upper back open. Again, it should be comfortable. And then release. Up again, left arm over the right arm. And maybe the arms twist twice, maybe they don't. If you have to choose where to hook the arms, try the most effective thing would be to get your elbows together if you could, or just to get one arm over the other close to your elbows. And then inhale, this time we'll try lifting up a little and lowering down a little. Now, what kind of sensations are the good kind of ouchy stretching, and which kind are the kind you should be cautious of? Stuff that feels like muscle, meaty, is a little safer. Bright, sharp, pinchy sensations, or sensations right up toward your joints, those are the ones to be more cautious of. Always, though, trust your intuition. I'd say 80% of the time someone tells me they overdid it in class, they tell me which pose it was in. And I say, oh, how interesting. How did you know that? And they blush a little. Well, I kind of knew. Let the arms come down. Bring the hands to the lap. Pay attention to your back across the shoulders. Nice and open across the back. Pay attention to the chest. Ah, that practice is extremely effective at opening the back, a little bit at the expense of the chest. It jams up the chest a little. So then we want to open the chest for balance. You can bring the hands behind the back. You'll need to scoot forward on your chair a little. And bring the hands together and press them back. And this is one of those things that some people's hands will move a quarter of an inch and they'll be sitting there thinking, woo-wee, and other hands will lift a foot and a half. Don't be distracted by what happens to the body in front of you. Just listen to your shoulders, listen to your chest. Lift up a little. Make sure your neck feels very easy. And deep breath through the chest. And then release. Give the shoulders a little shake. Compare the sensations in the upper half of your body, which it was pretty free, easy for us to move where you're sitting, and the lower half of your body, which hasn't had movement. Close your eyes and really pay attention to your mental map of the body. Top part of the body where we've done the movement already, usually we feel lighter, sometimes look brighter in the mind might feel larger. If I were less kind, I would have had you do either the left side or the right side, which is much more dramatic, <laughs> but would leave you not so happy when you were departing. So this is the part of yoga which is very familiar to most people these days. We move the body. Yoga also moves inward more and plays with the mind. So next we'll come in a little more deeply. Try now to position the body extremely comfortably. 
So press the back toward the chair to get support. Try taking your arms down off of the armrests and let them come into your lap so that the elbows can sink. Close the eyes. Come back to the breath. Exhale, the body contracts to squeeze the air out. Inhale, the body expands, both to invite the air in and as a result of the flow of the air in. Yoga Nidra. Literal translation is yogic sleep. We usually call it deep relaxation. This involves the progressive muscle relaxation, which Kevin had highlighted but didn't get much into. It can involve guided imagery. With time, it can help us to learn to remain conscious in brainwave states, which we normally experience only during sleep. You may have heard of the lovely studies that show that monks can be or very well-trained practitioners in regulating the mind can be sitting up and having a conversation and their mind is in a brainwave state that the average person who's not taken effort to train the mind would only experience in profound relaxation or deep sleep. So this feels sweet and soothing in the moment and it can also help us adjust the state of the mind as we live there. Picture the body surrounded by light. A little bit like Glinda the Good Witch. You're in your own little bubble of light here. Feel the warmth of that light on the surface of the skin. Let the light begin to enter the body through the tips of the toes, warming and softening toes and the feet. Let the light flow up through the ankles, softening the shins and the calves, the knees and the thighs, the hips, the buttocks, and the belly. Let the light and the ease flow through chest, rib basket, lungs, and heart. The lower back, the middle back, the upper back. Fingers and hands wrists and forearms, 
elbows, upper arms, underarms, and shoulders. Let the light flow up through the neck and the throat, the face and the jaw, the sides of the head, back of the head, inside of the head, the brain bathed in light. and the crown of the skull. Pay attention to the body in its entirety. The mind likes to focus, but we're going to try here to avoid focusing and experience the body symphonically. Just all of the senses, resonant. Notice the breath coming and going. It will be very light now. Body needs little breath here. When we begin in yoga to gain the skill of observing the body with clarity and without attachment, becomes easier to do that with the thoughts as well. It's just one more event that happens in the body. My thoughts like to tell me that they are who I am. But they aren't. I have beautiful thoughts that I would love to put on a banner and proclaim before you. And I have terrible thoughts. I wouldn't want anyone to know. They're just one more thing that happens in the mind. They come, they go. Notice the thoughts coming and going. face be soft. And then go beneath that. The teachings of yoga describe our innate state as bliss. A baby, if it is not being caused some sort of discomfort, is absolutely blissful. Yoga posits that there is a place always within us in an unchangeable state of bliss. Let your mind just sink in that direction. Gently let the eyes float open. So there is some experience of yoga, a little taste. How is that useful in medicine? Why do I get to work over at the fabulous clinic with all of the brilliant doctors? Um, In the kind of old-fashioned body-mind way, we can make artful sequences of physical postures that will change the tension patterns in the body and can help to relieve pain on every level. 
personally, a lot of my work is with people with cancer. And Kevin's original outline had those beautiful points about hope and mystery and spiritual connection. I was quite surprised when I was invited initially to speak in medical settings and to teach in medical settings to find that the audiences were often the most receptive to the spiritual practices that yoga has to offer because people who came there came because they were being inspired by pain, by discomfort, by fear, and it opened them up and they were really willing to try new things. Yogic breathing practices have profound, interesting, subtle effects on the mind. Uh, For the past year, I've been delighted to teach in a study we're doing at UCSF to see if that might be useful for people who are receiving chemotherapy to help with their fatigue. And we don't have results about that yet, but I know that every single person who got to study with me loved it. Um, The practice of yoga can help to awaken our sense of hope, our sense of connection, and our sense of mystery. We think we know so much about the world, and it's really important and can be incredibly inspiring to remember how much we do not understand about what the nature of the world is. And when people are facing challenges to their health, um, these kinds of thoughts inspire optimism and those kind of positive states of mind that you'll hear about in the really inspiring work on positive thought that's being done at the Osher Center later in our lecture series. Um, those people who had heart attacks, who are depressed, and their outcomes are less positive, yoga can help us to shine again, and something within us turns, and our bodies heal more effectively. And it's so much fun. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Christy, so much. Um, I feel better. Um, I want to make one quick reflection on that, and that is that I know it. So, so mindfulness is something I'm so interested in, and I practice. And that's an at- an attentional practice. So you sort of train the mind to try to stay put. Um, and when it wanders, there's a whole method for dealing with that. But in general, you're trying to you're always trying to train it. To st- when Christy was leading us through that, for the moments that I could stay and hear her and be in my body, following her instructions. This was the point I'm trying to make about a tradition that never separated mind and body. I certainly had that experience. There was, there was, no, um, there was nothing wrong. There were no thoughts. There were no stories that I've, something has to be different or something has to change. Um, so, so to the extent that we can stay present, I feel like um, I, I hope you too got a sense of, and I hope every day actually you get a sense of um, that inner um, yoking uh, to use the, the yoga derivative word. I also have to point out, Christy, Christy teaches four yoga classes at the Osher Center. One of them, the, the, the gentlest one, is um, chair yoga. So it's kind of similar to what we did here probably. Um, and a whole variety. And she even does little what we call mini retreats on Saturdays sometimes. So check us out there. It is my great honor now to introduce my senior colleague, Dr. Joseph Aqua. And he's going to do a, a case presentation of a Chinese medicine case, um, and uh, and we'll see we'll see where we go from there. Joseph, um, besides being a friend and colleague, is um, someone I look up to. He has he's been at the clinic since it started. He is sort of one of our anchors. Um, he also, in addition to his Chinese medicine practice, 
he is our Tai Chi master, and he teaches our Tai Chi classes as well. He's been studying that and, and going on retreats, it seems. He's so devoted to Tai Chi, he's going on retreats every year to learn more and be a better teacher and go more deeply into the practice. So it's really an honor for me to welcome Joseph Aqua. So good evening. Uh, how many of you have experienced uh, visiting a Chinese medicine practitioner? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, probably looks like about a third. Yeah, great. And so what I wanted to do this evening, uh, as Kevin talked about, that this is a tradition that never separated mind and body. And I think that when I, um, when I usually get asked the question, why did you go into Chinese medicine? My response is that I was always looking for a medicine that saw human beings as a part of nature, not separate from. And not only then is there not a separation between mind and body in traditional Chinese medicine, but there's also not a separation between us and nature. Nature is us, we are nature, there is just one thing. And this diagram that you see before you is how the Chinese envisioned it. And you can see it as coming from an agrarian society and from a society in which the seasons and the observation, astute observation of how things moved throughout a yearly cycle in our lives. And then looking for the relationships and seeing how those relationships were also true within the human body, mind, spirit, unit. So if you look at this chart, you see the five elements. Now, most of us, I think, in the West are familiar with the four elements, and we say earth, air, fire, and water. And you probably, you know, earth, wind, and fire made things sort of <laughs> popular for a while. There were people who were looking for what was the next one. But so it's, uh, we do the five in um, the Chinese thought. I was educated by a, a Frenchman who said, and we, in that four elements that we talk about, earth, air, fire, and water, that there's also in the Euro perspective also a fifth element called quintessence. So that really there are five in that system as well, the quintessence. Quin meaning five, right? The root being five. So in Chinese medicine, we said earth, metal, water, wood, and fire. And the wood represents growth, which they say isn't present in the four elements as we see it in the European tradition. So the fifth element being water, being wood, indicates growth. So if you took a, take a look at this chart, you see how all of these then get, these elements then get connected to our bodies. So the fire element 
the earth element, the metal representing what we would say is sort of the comparison would make it the air element in the West. Water, of course, and then wood being different. So there are these organ systems then, and of course the foundation of duality, not speaking mind-body, but duality on a universal, global sense is the idea of yin and yang. Uh, Classically, name something that has a front that doesn't have a back. Or as the character is in Chinese, it says, uh, the sunny side of the mountain and the shady side of the mountain, yin and yang. The organ system, so that the organs, the yin organs are the solid organs. The yang organs are the hollow organs. Times of the year, seasons of the year, taste, colors, sounds, odors, Emotions, seasons, the environment, developmental stages, directions, body types, personality, balances, or things that indicate out of balance. So how many of you recognize that when you go to see your traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, that this is the paradigm from which he or she is viewing you? Anybody? Yeah? And do they attempt to explain that to you and make you aware of it? Because awareness is very key in the whole process, right? Bringing the awareness, mindfulness, attention, focus to your own body, mind, spirit state. It's another look at these with a few less... So how does this work in a daily practice? Come back to this one. On a seasonal basis, so a patient comes in to visit. And frequently what we like to say is they come in with usually a Western diagnosis. And so what we're trying to do at the Osher Center is an integrative medicine approach, is to bring the two worlds together of traditional Chinese medicine or complementary and alternative medicine with the conventional Western approach. So usually a patient comes in, and typically the patient might come in with a Western diagnosis. And let's talk about IBS. Uh, how many know what that is or have any idea? Uh, irritable bowel syndrome. It is, I think, the uh, next level of all of the drugs that you see advertised for on television. Nexium, Prevacet, Pepsid, you know, the, uh, the, the, the purple pill, the yellow pill, the <laughs> right? <laughs> that indicates that there is some discomfort going on in the GI tract, gastrointestinal tract, the stomach, right? The stomach, but the stomach, if you look at this chart, corresponds to what? The earth element. And we say the stomach is the center. The earth is where we stand. So it is the foundation for the other four elements, if you will. And the spleen, 
is a organ that is connected to it. Now, in the West, we usually think about the spleen only in relationship to blood production, but in Chinese medicine, we say the spleen has to do with thinking. Has to do with thinking. And there's a recent book written um, called The The Stomach, The Second Brain, The Gut, The Second Brain. And it has to do with the fact that how many of you get a gut feeling about certain things, right? So we do think at some level there's more serotonin produced in the gut than there is in the brain. And yet all of these these serotonin reuptake inhibitors that we use for antidepressants are focusing on the brain serotonin when in fact there's more of it produced in our gut than there is in the brain. So when we're treating depression with a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, we really are affecting the gut as much as we are affecting the brain in terms of how it is related to our depression. So when you come in, and IBS is a pretty typical in all these GI disturbances that all these um, commercials are about and these drugs are on the market for, is a beginning to let us know that there is something going on in the gut and that thinking and our relationship with our, how we are digesting the world, not just our food. How are we digesting the world? Because digestion doesn't just take place on the one level. This is how a Chinese medicine practitioner is thinking. That's what I'm letting you follow me if you follow me. Digestion happens to be not only with the gut and about food, but it's how I'm digesting the world. So the patient may come into me and have this IBS diagnosis, but I'm looking from this perspective. So what am I doing? I'm doing a full, complete history, just like a Western physician will do. But I'm asking certain questions. I'm asking about what foods do they eat and what flavors do they like the most. Not foods particularly, but what flavors dominate. I'm asking whether or not they have, and I'm hearing how they are digesting the world, right? Is there what level of stress that they are under in how they are digesting the world? I'm listening to the sound of their voice. Is it a singing voice, right? Do they sort of sing? I've been told that I have that sort of singing voice. Is it a crying voice? Is it a groaning voice? We usually say that dampness is connected to this idea of IBS, dampness. What is dampness? Not like, uh, sort of like when you're retaining fluid, but it's more subtle. And it's when foods don't, people bloat immediately after eating would be a sign of dampness that the digestive juices from a Western standpoint aren't doing the work immediately because they're weakened. There's too much fluid there. They're not able to break things down quickly, and so there is dampness. There's an expansion in the abdomen as the food comes in. So a person comes in with this diagnosis of IBS. I'm looking at all of these things. I'm also looking at what time of day are they most uncomfortable 
and this doesn't happen to be on this chart, but we say for each of these 12 organs that you see listed here, there is a time of day when it has its peak energy. Just like there is a season when each one of these organ systems have their peak energy. So I'm oftentimes concerned with when did this condition begin with you? And I'm concerned then with the season. Did it begin in autumn? Did it begin in the winter? Did it begin in the summer? Emotionally, did it begin right after you had a traumatic event that you were having difficulty digesting? A typical IBS patient will have either diarrhea or constipation or maybe alternating constipation diarrhea. And it can progress to IBD, where we see changes actually in the tissue, irritable bowel disease. And then, usually in the West, not seen on a continuum, but we see it on a continuum, then could progress into uh, colitis, inflammation of the colon, then could progress into ulcerative colitis, where there are then sores within that, that then could progress further into Crohn's disease, We see it as a progression. And each one of those stages indicates that the imbalance has not reached, has not been reestablished. Because ultimately in our medicine, disease is a imbalance. It's disequilibrium. We are always in a state of doing this dynamic dance. We get too cold, and we get goosebumps, and our right things close up, and we get goosebumps. We get too hot, and our pores start to open, and we start to perspire, because we really exist in this very narrow uh, biological active area, right? 106 and 107, and we're out of here, and get down to about 87, and we're out of here. So we're trying to always maintain balance, right? He puts this bright light in my eye. I get contraction of the pupils. If I walk into a dark room, the pupils dilate. The heart is constantly in the state of on, off, on, off. So we're constantly attempting to maintain balance. The emotional states that you see here also play a major role. There's a statement The oldest Chinese text that we draw on mostly in our medicine is a book called the Wading Ne Ching. It was written probably, it was gathered together around 200 BC of data and of material that had been uh, accumulated for 1,000 or 2,000 years preceding, from about 1700 to 2000 BC. Uh, this material was written, and it was all put together in the Wadi Ne Ching. And it is done in a conversation between the chief physician for the emperor of the time, Huang Ding, and his um, chief and his physician. And the physician's name is Chi Po. And the emperor says to him, I desire to hear about the way. And Chi Po replies, he says, in order to make all acupuncture thorough and effective, one must first cure the spirit. So this idea of mind-body, spirit, 
being what is the spirit of the person. What's the we can, we say shin, right? Shin spirit. It's what's behind the eyes. Yes, when the patient comes in, when a person comes in, what's behind the eyes? What's coming out at me? And so I'm looking to see and get some understanding, you know, of any of these emotional powers, positive qualities, virtues, right? I'm looking and sensing for this in individuals. Do all acupuncturists and practitioners focus on this? Not much. It's my, I mean, some of them do, but this happens to be where I find myself in as a practitioner, trying to work at this level with people. We said that the highest physician was the physician who treated people before they were ill, Yes, it's a different kind of concept for us, right? But it's, if I can keep you healthy, if we can suggest to you ways in which you can eat, flavors in which you can do uh, exercises and things throughout the summer, throughout the winter, throughout the spring, right? How you can digest the world better, then you can remain healthy. And so a person with IBS coming to visit me that's ultimately where I'm wanting to go. Ultimately where I'm wanting to go. I have to treat their symptoms. I have to try and stop the diarrhea, get the constipation moving, and all of that. But ultimately, this is how I'm thinking. This is how all of us who are attempting to be the best and the highest level of Chinese medicine practitioners are attempting to practice. We used to call the, uh, there's a term in Chinese medicine circles called the Shen doctor, right? That's what I'm ultimately trying to be. Uh, from a Western standpoint, it might be the combination of a, uh, what one might call a priest physician, right? Attempting to really help the spirit of each, in, each individual to remain whole, complete, connected to their source. Right. Having proper compassion, propriety, integrity, selflessness, and wisdom. Ultimately, I think I'll stop there so that we can have time for other panel and discussions and conversations. Thank you. As we organize this and turn up the lights and turn off the slides, and Christy and Joseph and Dr. McKinney, please come down. Um, I just want to say one last thing. You know, if you think about human history, uh, say Homo sapiens, I don't know, 200, 300,000 years, um, the mind-body split as a, as a cultural paradigm, say, in the last 400 years, that's less than one-half of one percent of human history where we've been thinking mind and body are separate. Furthermore, today, if you took a snapshot of all the cultures around the world, still the majority of cultures never, they're not operating with a mind-body split. So when Joseph looks at a patient and he never just sees, oh, you've got diarrhea, he actually sees, oh, this is IBS, large intestine, grief is associated with that. So to me, it's, it's an exquisite statement of... Um, of uh, I guess what I'm what I'm stumbling around with you to try to point to, which is this 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 was never you can't separate this it never was separate. So so how do we 
Um, how do we live in the light of that fact? So let's, let's talk. Briefly, I could probably go on for hours about Tai Chi because uh, I've spent the last uh, 30 years practicing and training under just a wonderful uh, third-generation master. Um, and I like to say it in a couple of ways. One is that if you move fast, all of the large muscles of the body do the work. When you move very slowly, each and every muscle fiber has to do its fair share of work. So we say it strengthens from inside out, just like yoga. Yoga, you do postures progressive. Tai Chi, you do postures progressive. Strengthening from inside out. And then there is the mind and the focus that doesn't allow you to waver. We get peripheral circulation, which then lowers then the overall cardiovascular output so that the, there's expansion in the periphery. And therefore, the blood pressure gets lowered. And I'll stop there. Um, it's very interesting what you're saying, um, but I um, get into a, a defensive posture about um, blaming the victim. So that if the victim, I mean, if, if somebody doesn't get better, ah. are they not mindful? Yes. Um, and I'd like you to address that issue. Thank you so much. So it's in, in our circles, it's called New Age Guilt. <laughs> That's what, it's just the, the term, it's just the term they've, they've coined. Um, so uh, I do not believe, I, I, I won't speak for other panel members, but I, I'm, I'm guessing we're in accordance. It's, um, there's there's a, a sort of a new age school of thought out there that you can influence that everything, your thoughts, everything's derived from your thoughts. And if you just have the right thoughts, you can, you can cure yourself. You can do anything. You can change the world. You can make yourself wealthy, all this. I'm much more humble. <laughs> I don't, I just know and, there's... And none of us are wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just know that as a healer trying to practice my art that, like them... When, when I go into this arena, profound healing, even transformation is possible for people. Um, more commonly, it's smaller things, but smaller but important things. Um, so absolutely, I agree with you that um, uh, if, if, for example, so say my example of heart attack, uh, that if someone's depressed after a heart attack, they have increased, okay. So, so but... Uh, um, there's so many other factors involved. It's definitely true that one of the factors that would increase chance of heart attack is depression post-MI, but um, that certainly isn't that person's fault. You know? and, and, to, and, and so I wouldn't say that, well, it's, you know, they, blame, they should be blamed because they couldn't get themselves out of their depression or something. But just to know, that's the big, I, to me, the awareness is the first step, just to know that, oh, here I am after my heart attack. My mood is kind of low. That's important. I now have a choice. I can try to do something about it, or maybe, maybe I'm too afflicted and I just can't. I don't know. But in, I would certainly wouldn't blame. I absolutely uh, am with you. Yeah. Would you guys have any comments? Yeah. Um, the healing can take place on many levels as well. I deal with this a lot, particularly in teaching yoga to people with cancer. Um, you know, there's the and if you just believe hard enough, you can make all of your tumors go away. And 
I know people who have had that experience, who have been given a terminal diagnosis and have had full spontaneous remission. And I know people who have worked very diligently and have been unable to stop the disease process that's happening in the body, and that has been the apparent cause of the end of their lives, but their healing practice has allowed them to come to such peace that the quality of life that they experience during the time that they have is totally different. And the experience of what you have during your life, whether you can cure the disease or not, the healing that you can experience within yourself in the time that you have is just as valuable to us as what's happening in the body. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.